earliest memory of, of childhood trauma happened at six years old with a sexual assault. That's when my world spun upside down. That's when that safe reality that I had was used to became something very different. And yet it wasn't at that time, for a variety of reasons, it wasn't protected or validated in the way that my little six-year-old self needed it to be. Welcome back to Comeback Stories. So we are here today with one of my favorite people in the world, one of my greatest teachers, the person who got my comeback story shout out, Sean Korn. Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me be a part of this. I'm really excited to talk to the both of you. So let's do it. Let's do it. So we get we just get right into it on this show and we want to hear your stories. So first, just tell us a little bit of what growing up for you was like. Growing up for me was complicated. On some levels, it was amazing. I had an idyllic childhood. It was safe and grounded and protected and loving. And there was so much freedom and space just to be fully who I was and am. And it was really unsafe and unprotected, and ungrounded. And it wasn't safe at all. Like both were really true. And so it was complicated. And as a young person who was hypersensitive to the world, I had, I could feel when something was off. But unfortunately, my words couldn't express what I was feeling. So I was often told that I was either wrong or, quote, crazy or too much, too big, too loud, too sensitive, whatever it was. And so I got a lot of mixed messages growing up. On one hand, it was like, go be free and do. And on the other hand is don't do too much. And because there wasn't a lot of support for my big feelings and for my sensitivity to the world, my natural reaction was to shut down and dissociate. And started to cultivate compulsive behaviors to try to create order and and control for a world that felt disordered and out of control, even though the evidence around me was suggesting otherwise. And so that's why I say it was complex, because at face value, I had the parameters were set for me to have a life of ease and and support and yet internally i knew that was not true and that i could only truly rely on myself and so that was my childhood it was i i wouldn't go back and change anything because at the same time the complexities is what made me have to do the work that i did on myself going forward as an adult But I do wish that there was more mentorship at a young age that normalized my experience and that put value on people like me who happen to be hypersensitive and came into the world knowing that something's off, but not able to articulate it simply because of my age and experience. How do you feel? How did that show up? later on in life as you became a teen and a a rebellious teen and into your 20s? Like, how did that show up in the world? And how did that show up in your actions or inactions? I'll tell you, I'm going to be more specific, though, so that we can get to the core, because it's not that I'm dancing around it. It's just I haven't named it. But my earliest trauma existed at six. My my earliest memory of, of childhood trauma happened at six years old with a sexual assault. That's when my world spun upside down. That's when that safe reality that I had was used to became something very different. And yet it wasn't at that time for a variety of reasons. It wasn't protected or validated in the way that my little six-year-old self needed it to be. And so that trauma is the first time that I checked out of my body that I dissociated at just because of out of a sense of survival. And as a result of that, I developed obsessive compulsive disorder 
OCD. And what I did was to create a sense of control and protection. I became obsessed with even numbers, especially fours and eights. So everything had to be done in order. And it, the, as I moved towards puberty, what was subtle and things that I can get away with behind the scenes, it became more overt. And it included like blinking, swallowing, walking into walls, tripping over things. If I knocked into something on one side, I'd have to figure out a way to do it on the other side. I'd, and I was very vocal about it because I didn't understand where it was coming from. And so I was quirky enough to be honest and tell people, like if they tapped me on a shoulder, like you got to tap me on the other shoulder. And, but as I became more aware, my obsessive compulsive disorder became associated with spirituality and God, meaning and superstition in that if I didn't do these patterns, I became convinced that something bad would happen to someone that I loved. And the only way that I could stave off this bad thing was to make sure, it was like my little deal with God, to make sure I did these things. What I didn't understand was that these patterns were a way for me to self-regulate from my a nervous system that was out of whack because of my trauma. That trauma lived as a sensation in my body and it manifested as anxiety. And that anytime that I felt anxiety, if I did these patterns, it would help me to calm and ground. And so there was a connection for me of self-regulation, which later on I would use drugs and alcohol in the same way to self-soothe. So these these mechanisms, these survival mechanisms of self-soothing was my response to trauma that wasn't allowed space to discharge. Like that little girl needed to scream, rage, cry, beat something. It, that little girl needed to be validated and protected. And because she, I wasn't, the, the brilliance of our survival mechanisms kicked in and I figured out a way to be okay without actually ever really learning how to process. And so the older I got, the more complicated it got, the more paranoid I became, the more superstitious I was. And that carried over until I moved to New York City. Now, granted, I, I was also a really vibrant, healthy, popular, creative kid simultaneously, like both were true. I was neurotic and sensitive and living a very full and heart <clears throat> life. But the older I got, and after I moved away from home and lost my support system, this is another thing about alcoholism and, and drug abuse that really becomes important is that as I became more isolated, away from the support system that I found comfort in, and that included my mother, especially my mom. When I moved away from home and lost that, that is when I turned, and I had, I'd already been into drugs and alcohol. Like that already started at around, probably around 12 and 13, um, smoking pot. And then it just increased from there. As it does, I guess, when you live in a kind of a, a working class suburban environment where there's really nothing else to do except drink and get high. I don't think we gave it a lot of thought. We just partied. But when I moved to New York City, that random partying became more intensified. And simultaneously, my OCD became more dramatic. And patterning, that's what I called it, the touching of things, the blinking, all of that stuff, the patterning wasn't staving off the anxiety I felt because of the isolation that I was experiencing living in New York. At, at that point, I'm 17 years old. And that's when I started to drink and do drugs. And I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot because it was the only thing that I could do that helped me to feel more comfortable socially. 
but also staved off the anxiety, albeit temporarily. And so that's really the trajectory of like why my childhood was complicated and the way in which as I got older, I wouldn't say I was rebellious, but I was exhibiting behaviors that were both protective, but also caused more stress, more strain, more feelings of isolation and oddness that I didn't know how to manage or control. Wow. It's powerful stuff. I hear a lot of self-awareness and a lot of work. And that's one of the things that um, why I resonate so much with your heart and with your words is being under your guidance, doing training with you, especially the off the mat into the world leadership training, like life-changing for me. I tell everybody about it. But what was so apparent to me was like, she has done the work and she is in the work and can right. as continuously in the work. And if I hear so much self-awareness to be able to unpack your story and your childhood and all of this stuff, and it's just so inspiring to hear, who would you say looking back was one of your first real teachers? I mean, of course, they all are, including the man who molested me as a child. That would probably be one of my most significant teachers in my memory outside of my family because of the trajectory that my path went on and the amount of emotional sobriety that I had to come to as a result of that abusive behavior. So he would definitely be a significant teacher, although I don't particularly like to give him that much just credence in my life. But I also can't avoid the fact that here I am at 54 years old and everything that I just shared, there's some really deep teachings in that, were all as a result of that experience. But I would have to say that, again, outside of my parents, the reason I have a lot of self-awareness is because I opted to get into therapy at 18. I knew something was off. And I knew the environment I grew up in wasn't going to help give me the language that I needed. And there was a person I became friends with, who I'm friends with to this day in New York City, who just recommended that I should, um, rather I admitted the obsessive behaviors to a friend, to this person, and he suggested I check out therapy. Now I had no money at that time, and I was working in, in bars and restaurants, but I made that commitment to myself that actually... I was ripping off the restaurants that I lived in. I was skimming off the top. So I was like padding my pocket. And to justify doing that, part of that justification is I was going to take that money and put it towards therapy. So it didn't feel like it was coming out of rent. So just in the full disclosure, I was using the money I stole so that I would eventually stop stealing. <laughs> but that wouldn't come for a couple more years. But I worked with a therapist by the name of Norman. And Norman was the first person to identify obsessive compulsive disorder. I didn't have a name for it at that time. Like I said, it was just this quirky thing I did. And I didn't know that it was a response to childhood trauma because I also didn't think that what I experienced was trauma. I didn't know. It's just like I had buried it so deep in my body. And Norman, after working together, was the first person to say, do you think that there is a connection between you, your patterning and your childhood sexual trauma. And I remember looking at him saying, what, tra what trauma? And him just staring at me like, I'll wait. And finally he said, your molestation. And I was like, that wasn't trauma. I'm fine. That happened when I was six and life's really okay. And it didn't really affect me. And then it was like this light went off inside me. And I made the connection and I was like, oh my God, I was sexually abused. And I pattern because I have never processed the rage and the fear and the grief that I felt from that. And not just that experience, but other experiences over the year that were similar that I had also buried down. And it was the therapist, a Norman who got me to make the connection and taught me about trauma and taught me about obsessive compulsive disorder and eventually helped me to understand 
that if I was really going to do this work and move towards a space of healing, that I was also going to have to let go of drinking, smoking cigarettes and drugs and make that commitment to sobriety on every level. Otherwise, my healing wasn't going to work, that these were all going to be band-aids, if you will, to avoid the real pain that was living in this body. So Norman, I would have to say, would be one of my first real teachers. And of course, Sharon Gannon and David Life in New York, who introduced me to yoga, also at a very young age. And having been blessed enough to work, have worked at the cafe that they ran called Life Cafe on Avenue B back in 1984. This was at the height of my, not at the height, not yet. 87 was the height of my uh, partying, but they were doing yoga. I was learning about it, hearing about it, rejecting it, curious about it. And eventually I would find my way out onto the mat. And being on the mat was also one of the reasons why I recognized that drugs and alcohol couldn't work and that I was going to have to find a way to be in relationship with drugs and alcohol and other addictive behaviors in a very different way. It's amazing what letting someone into your journey can do for you, especially seeing what Norman did for you. And I can relate to you know, your story coming up, having to deal with so much so early on and how you rely on certain coping mechanisms and uh, they work for a while, but after a while they turn on you and uh, they don't work the same. It's oh, this is supposed to be helping my anxiety, but here it is like ramping it or making it worse. And to let that go is like one of the hardest things ever because you think you know what you're doing because it did work for so long. So would you say that your own coping mechanisms was the biggest thing that was holding you back? from living the life that you thought you could live or would you say it was something else? Totally. It was it was just another form of dissociation and avoidance. I could exhale and everything for a moment, temporarily, it would shift. I'd feel like God was on my side, all was good, no one was going to die, and I'd get on with my day until the anxiety came up again. And the anxiety was always going to come up because it lives in the body and it hadn't been discharged. It hadn't been processed or engaged in any way. So I was constantly getting triggered. And so the trigger would form, would force me to create control. The control would then increase my anxiety. The only way to stave off the anxiety was more control. So it was just this vicious cycle. And yeah, like it, it was my undoing. Now my addiction would have been towards codependency and these compulsive behaviors, drugs and alcohol, I was able to choose to stop drinking and doing drugs. It hadn't gotten its hooks in my body to form an addiction. And I'm so grateful for that. So that I was able to choose sobriety, not as in some ways where other people, it is a necessity. It is life and death. My biological system wasn't set up in a way that when I chose to be sober and say that alcohol and drugs has no place in my life, that wasn't the thing that triggered me into panic. It was stopping the, the patterning. That was my drug of choice. But I knew that they all had to go because they were all working in relationship to each other to keep me stuck and to keep me seemingly safe. And so first it was drugs, then drinking, then cigarettes that I was like, okay, I can, I can be without that, but don't take away my patterning. When I finally had to do the work and it's lifelong in the same way that, that someone who's a true alcoholic, it's an everyday commitment to sobriety. There's not a day that goes by that I don't, find myself just for a moment, especially in like in conversations like this, when I'm talking about trauma, for example, and my nervous system is time traveling and I'm feeling that sense of danger in my body, saying it out loud, even though the reality is I'm safe and it's all good. There's still that child inside. So don't say this stuff out loud. 
So even as we're having this conversation, I've got this cord here, that's my mic. I keep turning the cord around my finger four times and then unraveling it four times. And when things like that happen, I, I might give myself a moment of it and then it's note to self. After this conversation is over, odds are I'm going to have to sit with my little girl. I'm going to have to let her like cry it out or write it out or whatever she needs to recognize, like, I get it. I took you into a place that was really scary and vulnerable and unsafe. So my patterning is often, instead of indulging it, it's note to self. You are feeling anxiety. You are feeling what's underneath that anxiety is some grief that needs to be recognized. So just breathe into that. So there's not a day that goes by that somehow the compulsive behavior shows up I just don't choose to let it run my life, but I still have to sit with the impulse, the addiction and be like, I hear you. I get it. I'm not going to ignore that a big feeling is coming up, but I'm also not going to indulge this pattern because all it does is alter the big feeling for another time in the same way that drugs and alcohol can for other people. And so that becomes like, that's still to this day, all these many years later, and probably for the rest of my life, my sobriety is being in relationship with it, not letting it run the show, and also recognizing that the impulse to orient towards it is because something else is going on that needs to be acknowledged. So I always say, thank you, obsessive compulsive disorder, but not today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. What I take from that is it's not necessarily about the thought or the urge that comes, but it's more about your reaction to it. And I know it took you a, a long time to develop a reaction that works best for you and for your health. Could you pinpoint a certain low point or a time in your life where you felt the most hopelessness or thought that things couldn't turn around? It would have to be going back again to New York City when I was young, because Once I got with Norman and got with yoga, I wouldn't say my life turned around, but I got tools and I got community and support. And I saw that it was all up to me to do the work, to ask for help and to be consistent and committed and also developing a relationship spiritually and and redefining a relationship with God was really hard for me because when I was being molested, where was God? This thing that I was taught was supposed to protect me and keep me safe. That was really not apparent. And so I did not have a right relationship with God at all and became an atheist, completely rejected it. And that's one of the reasons I would play God with the superstitions by creating all that control. And so once I found tools, and thankfully I was so young, I was still a teenager, 20 years old when It was in that age range when all these mentors and people and therapists and adults were coming into my world and saying, there are alternatives. I I feel grateful to this day. I don't know how, especially because so many of my friends died. So many friends that we were walking an equal trajectory. And for whatever reason, a community came around me and I said yes to it and showed me that there was another way to be and to live. There were a few moments, I remember, uh, I worked in nightclubs and I was a bartender in nightclubs. And when you're a bartender in nightclubs, you get drugs for free all the time. And usually it would be a little square wax paper folded, little square filled with And that would be in lieu of a buck that someone might give for a drink. And so I got very accustomed to just having drugs like like that and just turning around, doing the bump and not really thinking about how much I was taking into my system. Because when you're that young, you just feel invincible. And there was a day I was at a club called Paradise and I just did too much. And I was in the bathroom and my heart was racing. And it was the first time I sat there on the toilet like leaning against the wall, wondering if this was the moment that I need to be proactive and call 911. Am I about to have a heart attack? Because I was definitely, not only was I high as a kite, 
But because of my anxiety, I was having a panic attack. And I didn't know of panic attacks. And when you have a panic attack, when you're high on coke, not a good combination at all. I'm pretty convinced I'm dying. And I genuinely got scared and felt in this dirty bathroom, in this dirty club, the one part of me that's sensible, taking my own inventory and saying, this would be a good time to call someone and get help. And another part of my head, feeling the shame, not wanting anyone to see me like this, not wanting anyone to know that my behavior has gotten this bad. And I sat on the floor and I started to cry and shake. And someone came into the bathroom and got me another friend who was high as a kite also, but talked me off the edge and my, my, the panic attack increased and I knew I was going to live. I never wanted to experience that again. I never, ever wanted to know that level of um, standing on the press. I did not want to die. That wasn't, that's not what I wanted, but I knew that I was doing things that were easing me in that direction. Shortly after that, a man had, at the cafe where I worked, a man had overdosed in the bathroom of the restaurant. It was not the first time I had seen an overdose in that restaurant at all. But the man had to be carried out. They had to take the door down and put the man on the door because he was large and heavy set. And they, that's how they were able to carry him through. And as they carried him through, he wasn't covered. He was clearly dead. And there was like a white substance foaming from his mouth and nose. And it was very shortly after I had my own experience of being in a bathroom on the floor, thinking I was going to die. And seeing that man carried out, thinking like, that could have been me being carried out on a door. And that's how my parents or family or friends would have to know and remember me. And those were the moments that I really felt like God came in and gave me visual examples of my destiny. And if I wasn't more committed, understanding the pain I was in and the trauma I was in and to stop masking it the way that I was. And so I would have to say that was one of the many shifts that happened during that time where I, again, made the choice, not out of necessity, Meaning that, again, people very often talk to me about my addiction and having been a part of a family where my stepdaughter is an addict and I have parented an addict and I know the struggles of an addict. It's important for me to make sure it's very clear that if I chose to drink today, I could and put it down tomorrow. It wouldn't have an effect on my body in the same way it would for other people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol. And like I said before, my addiction, uh, now could I have moved in that direction? I feel like I was, my system was maybe a week away of it being biological, but it was psychological and emotional. And my interest in stopping it is because I didn't want to die and I didn't want to numb the pain and I wanted to live a different life. It sounds like there's uh, the greatest parts of your story developed from getting that close to it being your rock bottom. It, it took having that experience to really teach you lessons that you needed to have in order to transform your life. And I know that through all these painful times, we have a certain narrative in our head that we cling to and it helps us survive most of the time and helps us get through a lot. But it may not necessarily be true and it may not be indicative of uh, our best selves. I know for me, it was like I needed the approval of people. I needed somebody to tell me I was great, to feel great. And that was my narrative that I had to lose in order to elevate my existence. And I want to ask you, was there a narrative that you may have been clinging to for a certain amount of time that uh, you had to get to the side in order to tell your comeback story? Yeah, I would have to say I think the narrative continues to evolve and grow and change. There's still a narrative even now at 54. As a young person, I just wanted to be cool. I, I just wanted people to like me and to be cool and to be accepted. And my anxiety 
made me different. And so I didn't want anyone to know about it. I know now everyone was anxious, but at that time I didn't understand that. So I just wanted to be valued. I also didn't want to be damaged, which is how I associated childhood sexual trauma, that something was wrong with me. It became very complicated because the earliest information I received is that I was valuable because of the way that I looked, because of my sexuality. Now it's six. There is no sexuality to that's, that's, that's apparent to the world, but I didn't understand that. It always felt like if I was less visible, then that wouldn't have happened. And so my relationship to my own sexuality and beauty as a young person was very skewed because I would still get so much approval from the way that I looked or because of my sexuality. And yet that would track me back to that six-year-old self. So I had no real sense of self. And so there was a real narrative that unless I was beautiful or sexual, I wasn't really lovable. And yet if I was beautiful and sexual, then I'm going to get hurt. And so love and hurt became synonymous. And that became definitely a narrative that I carried as a young person and that I had to work really hard at letting go, at reclaiming my sexuality and my beauty and my sensuality and to understand what it means for me, not what was projected onto me, what's true for me as an adult. And so that was definitely a narrative I needed to let go of. Of course, the narrative that there is no God, that was one that I had to redefine and decide what is God and come to the conclusion that God is truth and love and it's inside of us. And it doesn't matter what the hell you call it. It is something we awaken to all the time and that we can't look outside of ourselves for any kind of identification. And that the more that we can cultivate self-esteem with a capital S, the more in relationship we'll be to spirit because otherwise we're going to be looking to the external world for validation and there's never enough of anything to fill that void, including drugs and alcohol, including patterning, including sex. And so I had to really dismantle the narrative that I had and create one for me that felt substantive and that I can make sense of because I wasn't going to revert back to that patriarchal understanding of God. That wasn't going to work. And so I had to decide and commit to that, that it's you and Donnie and it's me and it's Norman and it's my perpetrator and it's every single person being experienced that walks this, that moves through this world because it's all of those moments that, that evoke the shadow is what gives us fodder to learn about the light that teaches us empathy and patience and acceptance and love. And that we wouldn't have any of that without all of the other. So in the dismantling of the negative uh, narrative that I had around God helped me to redefine and find God within myself and in finding God within myself found love. And so there's so many different narratives that had to be, dismantled over the years, identities, the identity I had when my father died as what it means to be a daughter, the identity I have as a teacher, the attachments that I have to those roles and those identities. It's all an addiction. I think it's a constant process of dismantling these identities so that we can continually move into right relationship with our highest essence, again, love. But these identities also serve a purpose. These narratives serve a purpose. They're not bad. It's just part of the essential journey that brings us into wholeness. And even those awful bottom moments that I have, even the, the times that I gave away my body or my sexuality, I wish that didn't happen, but it did. And you can't change what is. But as a grown-up, I can look back and shift my perception so that all of those moments have value 
And I'm empowered, not in spite of those experiences. I'm empowered because of them. And I wouldn't be who I am with the sensitivity that I have had I not walked that path exactly as I did and remain grateful that I had the mentors and the teachers and the community and the support to continually prod me into making, not just making healthier decisions, but to be willing to unpack why I wanted to make decisions that were ultimately going to cause me suffering, harm, hurt, and pain. And it was in the unpacking of all of those stories that I got to own the complexities of the human experience, honor the the tenderness of this unique journey and have empathy on how complex it is for all of us and to not or doing things to survive when they don't have the words or the support or the community to do anything other than what they're doing. And so uh, those are the ways in which I've worked to both dismantle those narratives and reframe those stories so that they're empowering and move me into purpose. So good. Just hearing your words, John, I'm just so grateful for you and to have you in my life. All of this wisdom, it just brings up so much and so much I've learned from you over the years. And one of those is that once we own our wound, we can write the ending of the story. But until then, like that wound will hijack our lives. And sadly for, I would say, most or many, that's exactly what happens. What are you grateful for today? I'm grateful for community. I'm grateful for you and for Darren and for people who are out there doing this work and who are breaking shame around the vulnerabilities of being in these human bodies. I'm grateful for all the ancestors and teachers who have come before who work tirelessly to put these practices into a practical application and, and all the mentors who don't give up on, especially on young people. I'm grateful that I get to share these stories with people and that in sharing them, I continually discharge the power that they have that still lives within the body because it does, it always will. It's in the cells. And the more I get to communicate, the more the energy doesn't stay suppressed and is given space for release and it can become something new. I'm grateful that now as a 54-year-old woman, I get to reach back and help others and support them in the evolution of their own consciousness. I'm grateful that we get to be alive in the world right now because our world is very much in trauma and it's being excavated. And unfortunately, people are responding to fear and to hate with fear and hate. And the cycle will perpetually continue. And it, that's why we're in the place that we're in. But why I'm grateful is that simultaneous to all of this separation and terrorism and homophobia, transphobia, racism, sexism, etc., there are also tools and teachers and teachings that allow us to process the hate, to understand the trauma, and to be able to manage our reactivity so that we don't meet hate with hate, so that we can witness the hate, speak truth to power, but never lose our center and never lose our capacity to look for love. And if we can transform what's happening in the world right now through the shift that's happening with us individually, then I really do believe equality and justice and peace is the inevitable outcome. So this is a very important time to be alive in the world right now. And we need to be doing our inner work so that we can show up and dismantle the systems within ourselves and the systems that exist in the world that continue to create oppression. And I feel hopeful that more and more people are learning how to take accountability 
for their own participation. And we, as a result, together can create the necessary social change that needs to happen. So that's what I, I'm grateful for. The, I'm grateful for the work, for the skills and for the tools and for all the teachers and mentors. I love how far your gratitude has come. I know like when you were younger that you would have been cool with just being cool. You would have been grateful for that. But now it's, you're grateful for the so many intricacies that make the world up and there's no limit to what you're trying to do. You're, I see you trying to exhaust yourself to make change in every way possible. And I love that. But for this next question, we'll switch it up a little bit. If you had one 140 character text, like an original tweet that you would send to your past self with all the knowledge and all the learning that you've accumulated now, what would that tweet say? Um, Cry. It would just be those three letters. Cry. When I experienced the initial trauma and dissociated, there was a primal scream that wanted to come through. The survival skill knew that might get me hurt more. And so it was suppressed. And that suppressed energy turned into other things over the years. It turned into rage, but it was always grief. And I often wonder if there was space created for that little girl to cry and to get comfortable with her vulnerability, with my vulnerability, if my path would have shifted. So I would have invited that that little girl to cry. But I think my tweet would also be to let her know it's all going to work out. Walk through this discomfort. It's going to get ugly and awkward and weird and painful. But trust the mentors that show up. Say yes to help when help arrives. And open your heart to love because everything is going to change and you're going to be cool, really cool. And I would also want her to know that pain is inevitable, but suffering, that's often a choice that we make because it's an addiction. And I would invite that young self to stay in the pain, to learn about it, to be with it. But at some point, reframe it. Let it become something else so that you don't hold on to the suffering and that suffering doesn't define you going forward because there is a distinct difference. And and trust the process and also thank her for putting down that drink, for putting down the blow and all the other drugs and for choosing yoga and therapy as a pathway for having so young and thinking that was a good choice and for stealing the money (laughs) to make it possible and to stop stealing. So there's a lot that I would say. I don't know if uh, if 140 characters could possibly could say it all, but crying would be important. I knew that wasn't happening with you. There's too much fire. There's too much inspiration. And I'm glad you didn't limit it to 140. Uh, Who, who would you say we always end with giving a comeback story shout out? Who's that one person in your life that you want to give some love or give the glory to that one person that was in your corner, no matter what, or left that big impact on you? There's really two for two different reasons. My mom, of course. My mother, who held space for the pain, the shame, the the rage, the grief, and still does, and encouraged me truly to be all that I am, and modeled what a strong, independent, fiery woman can look like. If I have confidence in the world, it's because of her love, devotion, and protection of me. But the person I really want to give that comeback shout out to was my teacher, Mona Miller, who died nine years ago in a car accident at 50. Prior to that, I was able to work with Mona for 11 years and Mona taught me anger work. And it was the first person who helped me to understand that some of the tools of yoga, um, the philosophy of yoga was another form of bypass and that I could explain how I felt, but I was still not great at expressing it. And that I was so terrified of my anger, that the anger would consume me, that I had was still suppressing it, but just in more creative and complex ways 
And Mona is the one who just, who taught me how to do anger work, how to get to the rage, get to the anger that I can feel into the grief. And also helped me to develop an even more nuanced relationship to God. And she did it in a way that was funny and transparent and completely inappropriate sometimes. Did things that a normal therapist would probably, they lose their license. Now Mona wasn't licensed, so she didn't give a shit. Um, so she could be really radical in the way in which she approached healing. I think what I learned most from it she never held back from showing her path and process and owning her victories and her present time missteps and what it looked like to model the breaking of shame around these stories and that it can be funny. And that it doesn't always have to be like in a fetal position filled with self-beat and shame. That you can crack up at your own missteps and shake your head and share the story in a way that allows others to feel safe in sharing their own. And Mona taught me how to do it. It's why I'm able to have this conversation with you the way that I am and just name it because I don't identify it with it in the same way. And Mona taught me how to do that as well. That it's both of me and completely like, it, it's also over here as, isn't that cute? Wasn't that interesting? Wasn't that weird? Wasn't that fucked up? But not to live in the judgment now as an adult, but also not reject what happened in the past. So Mona Miller, wherever she is now, huge influence, busted my ass. Mona would, uh, she made you do these things called air outlines, meaning that uh, she didn't want us to come into a session and have to tell a story because she wasn't interested in the story. She wanted what was underneath the story. But she often knew that we had to go through the whole bullshit of telling the story until she can get underneath it. So we had to do what was called air outlines, where throughout the week, we had to go and just bitch. Online, it got recorded and she would do the dishes and listen, whatever. And we couldn't go spiritual. We couldn't go to the like, oh, I know why this is happening. And here's the bigger reason. She wanted to hear the judgment. She wanted to hear all the, he's a fucking asshole. And what a goddamn, you know, whatever it is. So that when I would come in, she would already know what the bullshit story was and go right to the underneath, to the essence of it. And so, and if I didn't do it, because I didn't like doing it, I didn't like not being able to go spiritual, she would charge me. She would charge me a full session if I did not leave an air out call one at least once a week. I'd be like, that's like unethical. You can't do that. And she's like, I don't care. I need you to get to the truth. And I don't want to waste time with this other bullshit. And so Mona just taught me how to own, not admit, but own. And in doing so, be free of the story so that I can get to the truth. It's powerful stuff. My comeback story shout out on a previous episode was you. And I just want to acknowledge you, the wisdom and the fire and what you've taught me to own my story. I can think of countless full-on spiritual experiences I had in a yoga class, holding lizard pose deep into the hip for five minutes and you saying, the words, how dare we not? And for me, you said it once, it got me to do your leadership training. I went to your leadership training a month later and you said it again. And for me, it was how dare I not share my story. People in the yoga community didn't really know the deal. And so we were tasked with going back into our community and creating a service project. And I created Sunday Yoga Service and did this big event. And in the first one, shared my story. And everything changed after that day everything changed. I found my voice. I found my purpose. I wouldn't be sitting next to here where I'm connected with him because of that same thing. And he's doing it on a greater platform. And so I just, I can't thank you enough. I get emotional even thinking about how you and your heart and your fire, it completely changed my life. And 
I wouldn't be where I'm at today without you. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I truly love you. You're one of my greatest teachers and now closest friends, even though I don't get to see you in the physical very often. You're in my heart always. Donnie, I'm very humbled by what you just said. And it gives me so much happiness, especially because of how you are showing up in the world and doing it so boldly and transparently. And I know the impact that you are having and can continue to have. And to know that something that I said in any way inspired that just it gives me it gives a lot of meaning to the efforts that I put out into the world and brings me unimaginable joy because I know that I wouldn't be doing what I do if I didn't have that same those little pearls that someone had said along the way that just land that just grab your heart and move you towards purpose. I know that personally. So to know that in in some way that I was able to do that for you just means the world to me. So thank you. And and, mm-hmm. and thank you for now manifesting it in the way that you are. Yeah, thank you. Where lastly, where can our listeners find you and track you down? Sure. Um Seancorn.com and uh or online I'm doing online classes called Revolution Within to help people do a deep dive, especially during this time where there's so much isolation and trauma and lack of community, lack of support. And this is a way for people to practice and to learn new skills both uh, yoga-related, mind-body-related, as well as contemporary skills of healing and modalities like the ones that Mona, some of the ones that Mona taught me back in the day. And off the mat into the world.org if they want to learn about the intersection between yoga, transformational inner work, social justice, and conscious action. That's another way in which they can get engaged. Sean also has one of the best books out there, Revolution of the Soul. So you can also connect with her there. Thank you again. Thank, thank you from you so the much. bottom of my heart. Thank you, thank you for inspiring Donnie, uh, because through Donnie, you've inspired me as well. I know I speak on behalf of the listeners. Uh, thank you for your authenticity, for the tools that you've given to people that are listening today and that are allowing them to, to tell their own story. So thank you. Thank you so much, all of you, for having me on. And to all the listeners who are out there, you know, if I could offer that one piece of advice, breathe, breathe. Breathe, breathe, stay in your body and trust, trust the process. So thank you both for holding this space and for including me in on your program. I'm very grateful. We're grateful for you. Thank you. Peace. This is what I represent. Staying true till I'm six down. It might take a little bit, but every king's gonna get crowned. 